ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today on Conversations, it's a love story with some beautiful music in the background and in the foreground too. Shami and Gad started learning the violin at the age of three. Later in life, Shamian was given lessons by an extraordinary man named Richard Goldner, a brilliant musician who had come to Australia after escaping the Nazis in Europe. After Richard Goldner came to Australia, he not only started Music of Viva, the chamber orchestra group, which is still going strong today, he also invented a new kind of zipper for the war effort. Shamian and Richard fell in love and they lived and travelled and performed all over the world together for decades. It was after Richard died that Charmian walked into a shop in New York and met another great love of her life, an exquisite violin that cost almost as much as a house. And in her 80s, she still plays it. Hi, Charmian. Hello. I want to start with your very early life, the place you grew up in on the central coast of New South Wales, Arimba. Tell me about the Arimba of your childhood, what it was like back then. Well, uh, we were the first European settlers of that bit of land. It was 48 acres that my mum had inherited from her mother. And her mother had been given it by the government uh, because she had two sons that were lost in the First World War. So it was um, just timbered. And one of the rules of accepting this from the government was that you had to clear at least five acres of it. So can you imagine five acres of of thick bushland, wonderful trees, blue gums and black butts and turpentines and iron barks, all kinds of things. And was it your dad who cleared it? My dad and my mum and my mother's brother, my Uncle Bert. And how did they do that? Did they get like a chain between two tractors? Did they do it that way? No, um, just just by hand. Axes (sighs) and uh, cross-cut saws. Just one after the other, you had to cut them down, cut them up. Uh, we did have a horse that would... <laughs> my father made a um, saw mill from a, an old tractor engine. They'd be uh, dragged up to the saw bench. You'd cut them in various pieces and um, finally into building materials. And he made a house out of that? Yeah, he and Uncle Bert built that house. And how basic was this house, Charmian? Pretty basic. We had no electricity or phone or gas or anything, no uh, no water, no town water, no sewage, nothing. <laughs> but in a way it was a paradise, though, Richard. In a, in a way it was really, it was so close to nature. There was nothing between you and the, the birds and they'd wake you up in the morning, the most beautiful butcher birds singing to you, kookaburras. They were all my friends, you know. I was an only child. So it was a bit, I suppose it would have been thought to be a lonely childhood, but didn't seem it. What were your parents like? My mum was the youngest of 13 children. She was sort of, I think, forgotten pretty much by her family. Her older sister had already gone off and had her her own family by the time mum came along. And so she missed out on going to school to a very large extent. I think she didn't get to school until maybe second or third class. And then when she got to high school, her mother was dying, so she was taken out of school at about 14 to look after her mother, who, who was um, in her last stages. So it's just a few years of schooling, really. And how about your dad? Well, they were an interesting family. The Gads had come out from England. They were typical um, Victorian English people, really. 
members of George Bernard Shaw's society and and that sort of thing, Uh, intellectuals, thinkers, atheists, uh, very, very far left in terms of politics. It was uh, they were famous in the area because they'd argue with anybody over religion, and you know everybody was pretty religious in those days. When your grandfather was around, how would he wake you up in the morning? Oh, that was nice. Yes, we were, um, we had a, a one of those wind up um, seventy eight players, you know, um, oh, gramophone, gramophone. That's the word. Yes, and he would put on "Morning" from the Pier Gint Suite by. <laughs> Greek and that beautiful. <laughs> While birds are whittering in the background. How lovely. It was wonderful, yeah. yeah. That's a lovely way to wake up in the morning. It's very, very lovely. So music was always there and we used to listen to all sorts of things. So Dad had figured out how to make a, a radio, got all sorts of old bits from the, the rubbish tip probably or given stuff by other people. There was no money around in those days at all. It was post the Big Depression, and that lasted for a long time up there. There were no jobs. How did you get to school? I walked a mile and a half. Did you have a horse? Uh, Not to ride, no. The horse was for sneaking logs around. (laughs) (laughs) I did have a bicycle, but it wasn't much use because it was all downhill on the way there and all uphill on the way home. So given that you were living in pretty rustic and beautiful circumstances, how were you introduced to the violin? Friends, really. Um, I was born in 1942, which is right in the middle of the Battle of Britain, I guess, Second World War. And we had friends um, who were musicians. They were studying at the conservatorium. And they were sent off to the war and taught how to shoot Germans and all that sort of thing. And then released um, back, as they survived, as rehab students at the conservatorium. So they left their rifles and their uniforms, which they were allowed to keep after the, after the war, at our place in Arimba. And they'd come up regularly um, just for fun to shoot rabbits because we had a plague of rabbits, a terrible plague. They were eating everything. Right from when I was quite young, they'd be coming up for holidays. And you can imagine how I looked forward to these holidays. They'd disappear to various different parts of the property and practice. You'd hear you know, exercises and scales coming from one part and great beautiful Bach suites from a cello in another part. They brought music to the place where they'd be rehearsing their string quartets and solo repertoire for con exams. And also, of course, um, then my mum decided to learn the violin herself and one of the violinists, Kevin Miller, particularly helped her a great deal and helped me. And she decided when I I showed a a bit of promise... I didn't even have a violin of my own, Richard. I was playing in a full-size violin and I was about three or four. I was scrape away with the bow and my father would put fingers on the string and play a, a tune, you know, so we'd play, play together. And I'd do the other thing. I'd put my fingers on the string and find the right notes and he'd scrape away with the bow. Um, it was all just, just fun, just the things you did, you know, for entertainment. And how did it get more serious than that? Well, Mum realised I was gifted, so she put me for an exam and I did quite well. And then she she kept on with the exams and Kevin Miller, my first teacher, you could say, helped to prepare things. And eventually um, I'd go down to Sydney for a Stedford's. Mum would put me in the, in the Stedford. And 
the first at Stanford, I was eight years old, so I was in the eight years and under. But um, I came second in the eight years and under. This is without any teacher, really. So that was already good. But she also entered me in the 16 years and under because it was a, there was a set Mozart concerto there, which I just loved and I played and I played really quite well. Probably wrong notes, I don't know. But um, <laughs> at that point, I just played it with such enthusiasm that I got the first prize in the 16 years and under and the second prize in the eight years and under. <laughs> so my mum realised at that point that she had to get me to a teacher. <laughs> Were you composing as well? Oh, yes. I'd, I'd had quite a lot of nice little songs and um, one was played once when I was at school on the Terence Hunt show, I guess. Many people will remember that. On the wireless? On the wireless, that's right, mm. in the school. Right, so so you're all sitting around the radio, here's a composition by young Charmian Gap. That's was right. It like that, was it? Right. <laughs> Can you imagine the embarrassment? <laughs> so when was the time for you to leave that lovely rustic home in um, High school, because as I say, Mum realised she had to get me to a teacher. By that time, we were preparing uh, entry for the Conservatorium High School, which we had a bit of an entree to because we went to the con quite often with these friends go down to hear them play and whenever there was a, a great soloist coming or something, we'd go to the town hall and hear the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. This is the days before the Sydney Opera House where the, the Sydney yes. Town Hall was the main music venue. Oh, yeah, it was lovely. It was a very, very lovely venue. I think it still is. Who came with you to Sydney? Either my mum or my dad. Uh, we didn't have anywhere to stay over there so we'd have to take the late train home. And when it was time to go to the conservatorium... Mum got a job in Sydney. We then rented a, a room with a, a widow in Mossman who kindly took us in. She didn't mind a, a girl playing... ..in the house? Wasn't up to that one yet, but, yeah. <laughs> no, she didn't. She was very, very, very tolerant, fortunately. How were your teachers at the conservatorium? Were they terribly, terribly serious in those days? That was a bit of a disaster that first year. Why? Because um, it was felt absolutely correctly that I needed some discipline, right? Because I hadn't played scales much and I couldn't sight read and, you know, the, I had all sorts of lacking skills. You were a sprite of the forest, Charmian. Yes, I was a wild child mm. and I really was too. I could shoot, I could, you know, <laughs> do all sorts of things that the kids in the conservatorium high school were, I think, a bit amazed. Anyway, they sent me to a man called Florent Hoogstool. Ah, Florent Hoogstuhl. Hoogstuhl. He was uh, Belgian. He'd mm -hmm. come over with um, Verbruggen, after whom the, the wonderful hall at the conservatorium is now named. He was known as a disciplinarian, right? He would teach a technique and he'd be tough on you. So he had a, a terrific accent. You know, I'd never even heard an accent before. I mean, I'd heard Northern England accents and Scottish brogue and all that sort of thing. But I'd never heard a French or Belgian accent and I could not understand the man. Now, what would he say? Well, you know, when you take a, a up bow, you, your bow mm -hmm. goes in this direction, a down bow, it goes in the opposite direction. He'd say, ooh woo, ooh woo, <laughs> meaning up bow, and I, I'd say, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and um, one day he lost patience with me completely. He'd said some long sentence and I just sort of went right over my head. I said, I beg your pardon. What he had said was... If you say, I beg your pardon, one more time, I will throw you out of the studio, right? And you said. And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't, didn't, nothing registered there. <laughs> so he picked up my violin and he threw it into the case. And I walked over in a very dignified fashion to the case, 
put the violin in the case, closed it and just walked out of the studio and announced to my um, school teacher that I was leaving that teacher. I I was going to give up the violin if I had to keep studying with him. And my mum supported me 100% because she realised that I was just not getting anywhere. I I hated him so much. (laughs) (laughs) And so what happened? Did you get to change teachers? Yes, I changed teachers. That was the end of the first year there. um, So he could shout ubu at other people then? That's right, Mm. yeah. He lost a lot of students, I think, over the (laughs) years, but he had a lot of good ones too. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So how did you first hear about a musician named Richard Goldner? Well, Richard was doing stuff when I was just a child, you know. I mean, he started music of even in 1945, right after the war. He'd come from Vienna. He was actually born in Romania, Jewish, of course. was a, a well-trained musician from, from Vienna. Just barely escaped from there with his life. Um, How so? So after the, the Nazi Anschluss of 1938, was, yeah, he, Anschluss, was he there yes. for that? He was there at that time. Um, he even had the stupidity to go to work the next day. He was playing in a group that um, contained quite a lot of people who had been illegal Nazis. In other words, they were members of the Nazi party before it was legal, before the Anschluss. And... Um, Oddly enough, one of them um, actually sent him food when he had to go into uh, hiding. Now, he and his brother, Gerard, um, had um, married two sisters shortly before the... Uh, well, it was one of the last Jewish weddings while they were still allowed. And um, they were making applications, of course, to go everywhere in the world. He thought he could maybe go to Lima, but um, it's because he was born in um, Romania that um, quota was closed, all quotas were closed. So they applied to Australia and they were always making things, you know, they're very creative, the, the, the two brothers. They were making lampshades to go to Russia and God knows what, creating things. And they were making these lovely little brooches which were of the bluebird of happiness. <laughs> and so Gerard, when they were making their applications to Australia, included one of these little brooches in their application, which, of course, was opened by a woman. That's a woman's job. And she loved this little thing and she took it to the minister. It worked. And said, this would be a new industry for Australia. And it was. So that, by that, that ruse, they managed to get here. So Richard and his brother then arrived in Australia. With the two wives, yes. With their two wives. Yeah. And what did they do once they, they arrived in Sydney? Oh, well, they had people here that they knew, I think maybe even some family. So Richard, pretty soon as a musician, was taken into audition for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. So they offered him the principal viola position, but he was unable to take that because of the musicians' union wouldn't allow foreigners. Oh. At that stage, so that went, but um, nevertheless, you know, they they got got 
making things and doing things. And What was the business they started? I think it was jewellery. I think it was costume jewellery. And um, they had a, a little factory, I think, in the Strand Arcade in Sydney. And when war broke out, of course, um, this was declared a non-essential item. So that finished too. And because there'd been quite a bit of publicity, Richard, about this um, this weirdo inventor who'd come from Vienna and was a musician and all that sort of thing, it, a lot of it got into the Sydney Morning Herald and the, the various papers of that time. And so he and his wife, Mandy, were living in Manly at the time and suddenly somebody knocked on the door and they went to the door and it's this man in uniform, you can imagine the the chills that, that happened then. But he turned out to be a, a, a very, very lovely man who was searching out Richard for the Army Inventions Directorate. And sure enough, they, they put him to work as an enemy alien. He was classified an enemy alien? Yes. Why, because he'd come from Austria? He'd come from Austria, yeah. Expelled as a, as a, as a Jew, he, he gets yeah. called an enemy alien. In it was still mm. yeah, because he came from there. I don't think they quite understood the subculture of that. So he was put to work as an inventor? Yes, yeah, he worked for the Army Inventions Directorate. Now, he couldn't drive, he was not allowed to drive, so a police car would pick him up every day and take him into the office, take him home. And what did they want him to invent? Well, there was a big project for the the flight suits that um, RAAF, they had to have something that would cover them completely and... Uh, be able to go around in circles and work when mud was in it and all that sort of thing. So they were looking for a zip fastener that um, would do all these things. And uh, Richard came up for, with something and you know what it was? It was a double helix. This is way before Francis Crick and those people came up with the, you know, the... DNA spiral. DNA spiral, yeah. A, a double helix zipper? Yeah. Wow. And... Um, he knew it would work. He, he knew in his, his mind it would work, but he couldn't really say why. So he and a, a patent attorney friend, Fritz Rice, who also conducted the um, Lindfield Acapella Choir, another musician, they started drawing it and, and making mock-ups of it. And um, sure enough, of course, it worked. And it was used then by the forces in the Second World War. What did he do... With the money he got from that, did I mean, he clearly had a patent, so did he make a lot of money out of that? He was allowed to get a patent on it, yes. He had a patent on that mechanical principle, believe it or not. And what did he do with the money from the patent? I started Music Aviva. <laughs> he of set course. up Music Aviva yeah. with the money he got from inventing from, this new kind of zip. Eventually from selling that patent, <laughs> a British firm bought it to keep it off the market. That was a really good time for him. That was fantastic. And then he um, read that his wonderful teacher and mentor, Simon Pullman, had been exterminated in, in Treblinka by the Nazis. So Richard just wanted to remember him by establishing a group such as he had in Vienna, which was um, the Pullman Chamber Orchestra, probably one of the best chamber orchestras ever. It consisted of four string quartets, two violins, viola and cello, so four of those. So it was more than just a chamber group. It was a it was a kind of an institution. There. Yes, it was a real, a very very highly revered institution there. And that the was area. the inspiration for Music of Viva yeah. for Australia. Yeah. So we're now into the post war years with that. That that was his dream for Music of Viva to have this not just a chamber chamber group but a an institution behind it. I don't think he visualised too much 
about institutions and things like that. He wanted the group. The uh, organisation sort of happened by itself. Music of Eva as an organisation developed a little bit later. Uh, the first concert was just Richard. It was known as Richard Goldner's Sydney Music of Eva. It was at the Conservatorium. On the day of the concert, then, there was a blackout in Sydney. So Richard, you know, is not a man to take no for an answer. He went to Charles Moses at the ABC. Wonderful man. And he was the head of the ABC at that point. He was an army man, so he had generators and things like that at his disposal. He provided those for the concert. and um, The ABC saves the day. That's right. People had their cars in front of the hall, uh, shining their lights for people to go into the hall. Richard, of course, had organised a lot of very pretty girls to use uh, flashlights, torches and, and show people to their seats. And so it was a really, really um, very romantic occasion, I understand. So at what point did you meet Richard in your life then? When I was 14, I was already at the Conservatorium High School and I was playing in the Estedford, another Mozart concerto. And uh, Richard was the adjudicator. Now, my father, it was just before he died, was the Estedford before he died. Every year he'd come down to hear me play in the Sydney Estedford. So here we were in the small hall of the conservatorium. It was an open concerto section in this case. And he gave me the first prize, but he did say something which in fact was a criticism, but my father thought it was a great compliment. That was that I played Mozart like Tchaikovsky. Right. <laughs> Okay, with a whole lot of romantic flourish there. That's right, yes, and and total commitment and guts and all that sort of thing, which was not very fashionable at that point in Mozart playing. Well, I think it's marvellous, Charmin. I think (laughs) Mozart always needed a bit more Tchaikovsky in him just quietly, but that's just me. So so he said that to you, but he gave you first prize but with this kind of double-edged comment. That's right, yes, yes. He he had to announce his his comments publicly and so that's what he said and my father was most impressed and then, of course, you know, everybody smoked in those days. I don't know if you can imagine it, the, the small hall of the conservatorium, Richard sort of searching around in his pockets for a match. He had a, a cigarette in his hand. Almost every photograph of him has him with the cigarette in his hand. And um, my father was a smoker too, of course. He was sitting right back in the, uh, in the hall. He didn't want Richard to know that he was my father. And Richard was obviously searching for a match and my father threw him a box of matches. (laughs) So that was the start of a great relationship. So years later he became your teacher, your violin teacher then. What was he like as a teacher? Well, extremely strict and very, very demanding, totally demanding. I got by, I think, with, with talent and with just enthusiasm and a lot of encouragement from a, a very good teacher she didn't quite demand the, the technical necessities there. And what happened to you as a player, as a violin player, after studying under him? I had a, a very tough time for a while. He re-schooled my bow arm and um, that meant quite a lot of really, really nasty stuff. In other words, Richard, he took me seriously. So you went on at some point to study in the United States? Yes. At Indiana mm. University. What was the plan? Well, I'd, I'd won an overseas scholarship and that sort of thing. Music of Eva helped me a lot to, to go overseas. I had no idea where to go to study, frankly. We thought about Moscow because I loved David Oistrakh's playing and mm. then Yasha Heifetz, big name, was teaching in um, 
California. So that was considered a possibility. But I really didn't know. And Henrik Schering, the great, great Polish violinist, came to Australia. I played for him. And on the spot, he gave me pretty much an idea of who was what, where. And he said, and there's this wonderful man in Bloomington, Indiana, who's um, I would thoroughly recommend. So he got on the phone to Mr. Gingold, got me a, a, a graduate assistantship on the spot virtually, and I was off to Bloomington within that year. So you arrived in the Midwest of the United States and what, this is like the 60s, the early 60s, thereabouts? Yeah, 63. It's a nice Kennedy-era America. Well, how did that strike you at the time? Well, it was very backward, actually. Really? <laughs> in many ways, you know. The youngsters were pretty straight and um, most of them had to go off to fight the Vietnam War and they all had to do military service. But I made a lot of friends there and they were lifelong friends. And what did Joseph Gingold do for your playing? Well, after the, the really tough years with Richard, where there was a lot of discipline to that, Gingold had discipline too, of course, but he was more uh, along the lines of, yeah, you can do it, take the risk, you know, go for it. I think go for it is the thing that he most helped me with because perhaps by that time I was getting a little bit cautious or something and he um, encouraged me in that that regard. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So, Charmian, he'd been your teacher for some years. How did things change between you as you got older? Yeah, that's a good question, but a very hard one to answer. Our relationship as a teacher and student was a very, very close one. And you can imagine probably how when you've got two people working so intently on somebody's abilities. I suppose it would be similar with um, sports, um, but probably not to the same extent. The shared love of music was a, a great thing and all the disciplines that go with that, playing together in a group, the time that we spent together, we'd spend many hours a week together and it, we became absolutely the best friends Richard's life was kind of falling apart at that point. Financially, of course, he'd spent his fortune on... <laughs> the zipper fortune. He'd blown it. Right. <laughs> so he was, as I said before, working at a factory in St Mary's with his then-wife, Mandy, and their relationship had not sort of lasted terribly well. And he was not treated very, very reverently by the conservatorium. They had their own agenda and he didn't quite fit into it, so they brought in other people without offering a job to him. So after, uh, well, we studied together for a couple of years, and then I won the ABC competition, the what was called the Concerto and Vocal in those days, 1962, I guess it must have been. So that placed me pretty well on the map as a soloist. So we were sort of encouraging each other at that point. It was a, yeah, a very, very close relationship. Was there a language between you and the music? 
Oh, yes, yes. It's hard to describe to a non-musician, but, yeah, there was so much shared there. I was 19 at that point, and just the fact that the, both of you were working so hard together on developing all those musical skills that were necessary at the same time, spending a lot of time together. Richard was, was an excessively generous person. He would share everything. He'd always be taking people out to dinner, although he couldn't really afford it. He shared language. He taught me some German. He introduced me to all sorts of um, literature that he was reading, talked a lot about psychology. He just took me on as a human being. We had a wonderful time together then. That was a really creative and wonderful time. Was it scandalous, the age difference between you when you fell in love? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. People were chin-wagging, but that didn't worry us too much. And um, we had a lot of friends who just uh, understood the position and didn't bother with scandal. I encouraged him to leave Australia after I'd left. He was still here. I'd gone to the Tchaikovsky competition after I'd been in Bloomington for a while, came back and we prepared me for the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow in 1966. So I went off to Cold War Moscow I had a wonderful time. I did pretty well. I got a Medal of Honour. And a picture of Moscow in 1966. Musically, it was wonderful. All the Russian competitors were selected years before the competition. They'd um, been prepared, you know, to a fantastic degree and gone around the country playing all their repertoire everywhere. These were the selected best, and they were fabulous. They were fantastically well prepared, just great, great players. There were some quite famous American musicians there too. There was a great deal of disorganisation. I remember somebody who was responsible for trying to book my flights back to Australia. He didn't know where Australia was. I think he thought it was Austria. <laughs> but no, the, the whole experience was wonderful. You and Richard lived in the United States together for a while. Yes, we did. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, um, we were in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, which was uh, for 10 years. I tend to spend a, a decade in every place I go. At the same time, I was going back and forth from London then. And that's when you and, got married to Richard? Oh, that was um, in Australia. It was a very hot day and, and the Aram lilies were wilting and Ken Tribe from Music of Eva and his wife were our only, only people there, the witnesses. And so that was just a formality, really. We'd been together by that time for 20 years. Yeah, it was really because we were teaching at a Catholic university and we felt that they might disapprove of us living together <laughs> in sin. In sin. So then you moved up to Washington State in the northwest, Pacific Northwest of the United States. Was yeah. It, what was it like to live in a forest then? It must have been a bit like your childhood home. Yes, quite. When we left Pittsburgh, um, we had a choice. We could have gone to New York City where we had pretty good connections and were actually offered to share a job at Manhattan School of Music. That would have been wonderful in a way, but I think we probably wouldn't have been able to make ends meet. And much as I love New York City, it was a, it was a choice. Then right at that point, a friend who'd um, been with us at Duquesne University called from Bellingham, Washington State, right up near Vancouver, and said, Charmaine, there's a job going here. We'd love to have you. Can you come over and... Would you be interested in, in coming over here? He knew that I'd left Pittsburgh. So I said, oh, I don't think so. You know, we're pretty well settled. We're going to go to New York City. He said, well, why don't you just come over and have a look? 
So, you know, I'd just got my driver's licence because the whole time in Pittsburgh we never needed a car. We were only Americans without any car. So I hopped on a flight to Vancouver, rented a car, drove across the border and down into the most beautiful part of the world. It was absolutely gorgeous. And, of course, he spoiled me rotten, took me to all the most beautiful places. And we had ten lovely years there. So living in a forest, what kind of animals were surrounding you then? Oh, <laughs> well, we had skunks and we had... Um, <laughs> bears? Bears. We had, had bears. We had bears. We were quite on the edge of the wilderness. Uh, opposite us was a deserted apple orchard. And, of course, the bears came down from the wilderness into that um, apple orchard and left their little calling cards. You could tell what they'd had for breakfast. A couple of hikers. They, <laughs> they never actually came to our place, fortunately. They were, they were scaredy-cat bears. And raccoons. Raccoons were beautiful, but they were pretty destructive. You know, they opened everybody's garbage cans and a real nuisance. I mean, you knew how it was to live that life, but how did your urbane metropolitan husband get on living out in the, in oh, the wilderness like that? Oh, he just like loved that. it. By that time he was pretty much retired and he was working on some other inventions, of course, and also he helped with all the students that I had to teach. I developed a very, very big class there rather quickly. I did quite a lot of adjudicating of competitions and that sort of thing. I was adjudicating one day in Vancouver and I had a, a lady helping me who said, oh, a child prodigy is going to play for you. And I thought, you know, I hate child prodigies. Most well, of them even were though you were one. Spoiled. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I know I wasn't. I know, you won the under-16s, didn't you? <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, People used to refer to me as a prodigy. But by that time I'd, I'd seen a lot of, of kids who were just being pushed very hard and mm. flattered. So I wasn't really looking forward to this too much. But a beautiful young girl came to me dressed in an Austrian costume and gave me some music was a very good edition of a Schubert Sonata. This was an uh, open sonata section, right, which is um, violin and piano together. You judge them both as, as one performance. And so I said, well, uh, I guess you're, you're playing the first movement, right? She said, no, we'll play the whole thing. That was a shock for a start. And then she went off and they came together on, on stage. And the little boy was seven. He was just about as tall as the piano, and they came on, they gave a very professional bow and started straight in together magnificently on this Schubert D major sonatina. And I just put down my pen and I had tears running down my cheeks. And funnily enough, that little kid, a couple of years later, came to study with us. I taught him for two years and then I sent him on to university. He was 12 years old. It's a maths whiz as well as a, a violin whiz. And he ended up with a, a double doctorate at the age of 16 in maths and music. What is it about music that a, a seven-year-old can make you weep when a seven-year-old has got no life experience to speak of? That's right. They can't communicate a life experience or perhaps can just feel it through the music. I wonder what that is. Is it mysterious, I wonder? It's very mysterious. Um, I've, I've uh, experienced it quite a lot now because I became sort of the teacher to go through too, if you were if you were a brilliant youngster, which was great, I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, there's something I've seen it in competitions too, Richard. I follow the Menuhin competition quite a bit internationally, for two reasons. Um, I was on the jury with, with um, Menuhin twice in his competition. It has a, a 
youngsters and uh, mature people age group. I think the youngsters is under 16. So you get the best child prodigies in the world at these competitions. And I found it time after time, there's, there's just something in the, the way those kids play that it, it's unaffected. It just really gets you emotionally. I don't know if you know if you think much about music philosophically like this, but you think of a composer like Shostakovich, who's mm-hmm. working during the Stalinist years mm. of of Russia. Music of that kind is kind of abstract in its own way, and because of that, he's kind of able to tell the truth of what's really going on in Russia throughout the siege of Leningrad and throughout mm. everything else that's going on. Mm-hmm. And you feel you can feel so much of the the terror and the horror of Russia can, and, yeah, and, and the violence too. It. It's mm. all there in his music. It's, it seems to speak out and, and Stalin recognised something in it. This, the idea that music of that kind can be truthful in such terrible circumstances is kind of fascinating to me. Is what do it? you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's amazing and it, does, um, it gets to you. It, it, there's a truth in it that transcends Stalin and all that history. But as far as the little little players are concerned, I can't quite figure out why they have such this ability to just get straight through to your emotions. And when they're after puberty hits, I guess, or something, they, they lose that. They seem to get self-conscious. They start to think, you know, am I pleasing everybody? What will, you know, that particular juror think of my playing? Oh, they second-guess themselves. I think maybe that has something to do with so it. So then do you advance as a player, the way you advance as a player is to get through that phase, to stop second-guessing yourself. Yes, if yourself. you do get through that phase, lots of people don't. To make it to the top as a soloist, you need to have something very special to say. To go back to the start. Yeah, but you can't, can you, really? It doesn't work that way. Mm. You have to somehow try to um, to dig in there and, and find the truth that you had when you were younger. And a lot of it involves just ignoring a lot of what you've been what you've been told and taught and what is fashionable because fashion is a, a big thing in, in music, unfortunately. We have to follow the fashions. Really? What changes in the score? I mean, you've got a score in front of you. You've got the dots there, haven't you? That's right, How yeah. Do, you mean like the choice of composer or is it the way the... Or the way you play, for example, um, has been a very big change. You know, um, the time of Yasha Heifetz, who most people have forgotten now, who was the, the greatest violinist probably of all time, he used certain types of slides to get from one note to another, a certain type of vibrato and, and certain things that were uniquely him. And for 40 years or so, everybody tried to copy him. Now, not many succeeded, but certainly that was a fashion. You had to, had to do that, to get ahead, play big time, that sort of thing. And now uh, a lot has changed there because of the historically informed kind of movement which I um, was very critical of when it first happened because a lot of people who were involved in it weren't that good players in the first place. And so they play without vibrato, a certain way of playing chords. You know, when you play more than one note at once, um, you can play four notes sort of at once on the violin. And so, you know, there's a big change in fashion in playing Bach, for example, an enormous change. And the historically informed movement uh, looks into how it would have been played at the time when the composer composed it. And they're even getting up to composers like Brahms now, who was only late 19th century and early 20th, very early 20th. So they're now looking at this and realising that he took a lot more time over things than 
we in the sort of mid-20th century, we had to keep up the tempo, you know, don't stop and don't slow down or this sort of thing. You play with the metronome in your veins. So that's a fashion that's changed for the better. Now it's possible to play Brahms with much more time to do things. So fashion, yes, it's a silly thing, but performers do have to follow it. So despite this lovely life you're having, living in, in the woods in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, you came back to Australia in the mid-80s. What brought you back, Shani? My mother was getting old and, and Richard's family were growing up here and they had children, so Richard wanted to be closer to his son and grandchildren. So you and Richard and your mum were living under the same roof. How did that work out? I had to look after both of them virtually. Unfortunately, they didn't get on very well. They were very similar and, and had very similar ideas on just about everything, but for some reason they, they rubbed each other the wrong way. And under the same roof too. <laughs> under the same roof. It was a bit difficult for me. So with you looking after both of them and both of their health was failing, who was it that you lost first? Uh, Richard in 91. Well, he was a smoker and he had emphysema and, you know, all sorts of things went wrong gradually, particularly his lungs. He was uh, working on an invention. In fact, the day before he died, I'd taken him off to see somebody who was making a, a model for him of some new thing. I think it was a, a page-turner, an automatic page-turner thing. Brilliant, beautiful. And um, when I told these people that he'd died the next day, they couldn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. It was very sudden, fortunately, which is a much better way to go, of course. But in a way I was expecting it, yes. I could see that his health was, was on the rocks. And um, I was just happy that he was so, um, you know, his brain was 100%. And then two years later, after your mother died, you went off to New York to buy a violin. Yes. I sold the house in Belmain for much, much more than I'd bought it for. I'd put a lot into it, of course. And um, there I had that feeling that, you know, I had a little bit to spare. So I went to New York with some friends, including Tony, my new partner now, and a girl, a student from Turkey who was studying with me at the time. We all went to New York together and I walked into the shop of Jacques Francais who was one of the biggest dealers of all time and um, played this instrument made by Matteo Goffrilla of Venice and I just fell in love with it. It just was, it had everything that I'd always wanted in the violin and strived for. What was it like to pick it up and play it in the shop? Just marvellous, yeah, particularly with those two there just listening and, and seeing my response. And what was the price tag on it? It was $100,000 at the time. Whoa! US. But mm. because I just sold my house, I had it. <laughs> that was my concert instrument from then on. Is there a thing where a violin can actually, you feel your voice meets it or something like that? Yes, yes. yes. It, it speaks somehow the language you want. This is a deep-sounding violin, not a very soprano one, although it does have a great deal of sweetness to it. And it's a gutsy violin, you know, all the things that were part of me. <laughs> so you played that for many years. Mm. When did you realise that your concert performance days might be coming to an end? Well, actually, probably that instrument had something to do with it. Um, when I came back to Australia, I was teaching at the, uh, first of all, the Canberra School of Music and then the Sydney Conservatorium. 
Then we started the Macquarie Trio with Kathy Selby and Michael Goldschlager. Kathy lived in Sydney, but Michael lived in Perth. So every program that we did with the trio, Michael had to fly in. He'd stay with us usually. We had an apartment in Sydney then. And we'd uh, rehearse madly for probably three or four days or something. Totally new program and play that for the concert at Macquarie University. And also we had a series in the city always, various different places. And another one was the the beautiful St James Church. That was my favourite. So each time we had to give a new program and it had to be rehearsed when Michael came in. So there was very little time to rehearse really. So we, we rehearsed great long times and then we started making CDs for you people, the ABC classics, and um, the first one was two Beethoven trios and the second one was two Mendelssohn trios. Now, when you've got a great crew sitting by in the studios in Ultimo, you get almost, almost get something perfect because CDs are really constructed things, you know. You play, first of all, and, and then you start correcting things that might not sound good on a CD, you know. Somebody misses a little shift somewhere or somebody plays out of tune somewhere or we're not quite together somewhere. And this mounts up then, you've got six hours of recording, right? I'm not used to playing six hours because I've been teaching, you know, I might practice two hours a day if I was lucky. And so playing these six hours... I started to get pain through my left hand and the, the first CD we noticed it but the second one it, it got pretty bad and, you know, if the six hours didn't quite get it then you stay longer and you do another few takes of something until you've got it in the can, as they call it. With more and more pain in the hand. More and more pain in my hand. So the second one then I actually went to a doctor and, and they said they thought it was Dubtron's syndrome which is uh, where your hand goes like that. I do have it on this hand. You mean where the fingers splay in the middle? Yeah, the fingers splay somehow. It didn't happen on my left hand, but nevertheless I could feel that um, I was not going to be able to play the way that I used to play. So So it was like cramping up then, was it? No, it was just pain, just sheer pain and uh, lots of things that I I couldn't quite do uh, to my satisfaction. So it broke my heart, but I had to leave the trio. That was sad because uh, it was something I really loved doing. I took a year or so off, but my friends kept me playing chamber music. We'd have a weekend of, of um, drinking nice wine and and that sort of thing, and we'd just get our instruments and play just for fun. And so that got me back again to playing, and this was no longer hurting. So obviously it wasn't Duptron's syndrome, it was just a strain. And um, over the years it's gotten better and better and I've done more and more playing. So I'm still at it. I haven't played for a while now and I don't, I'm not sure if I'll be able to again because I do have an arthritis um, condition which is creeping up on me. Do you play for pleasure? Yes, yeah, always, yeah. It's such a wonderful thing to have in your life. So today you live not far from where you grew up. Is your old family home still standing from the yes, 1940s? believe it or not it is, yeah. Yes. It was just a pioneer shack. But it's still standing and somebody's living in it. And what music do you play today that reminds you of Richard? Any of the chamber music, of course, reminds me of Richard and also any, any of the solo stuff that I studied with him. And we taught together for so many years. You know, I, I was very, very lucky to teach 
under his guidance when I first started. Because when I first started teaching, I didn't get talented students. So I was teaching people who were not beginners, but they weren't advanced students. And so I really had to learn how to teach from uh, very early stages. And I found that I did enjoy it very, very much. I seemed to have a good way of getting into somebody's psyche and figuring out where they are in their thinking and in their playing and then to meet them on that level and just take them to the next level without thinking, you know, this is going to be a Yasha Heifetz or something. And so it's sort of ironic in a way that I ended up teaching all the, the brilliant ones. Um, became such a hallmark of my career and it's very, very rewarding. It's been lovely speaking with you, Charmian. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's just a little bit of Mozart's piano quartet in G minor, performed there by Shami and Gad playing that beautiful Gofrilla violin with Boris Berman and Theodore Kuscher and Tim Hugh. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.